It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Warning, this is a true crime podcast and is not suitable for all audiences. Please use discretion. Have you got a member of your family that you just don't gel with? Maybe they have different views to you. Maybe they've caused arguments within an otherwise peaceful family. Maybe they're greedy or uncaring. Or maybe you just can't put your finger on what makes them so different to you. Well, maybe they're a serial killer and you just don't know. I'm Naomi Channel and this is Real. Today's case is about a man called Robert Durst. If you know his name, then it's likely you will have heard about him in the news, or maybe it's been covered in another podcast that you've listened to, or a YouTube video that you've watched. Or maybe you watched one of the most incredible documentaries, in my opinion, of all time, called The Jinx. If you know this man's story, then hopefully this episode will give you some new information that you didn't know. If you don't know it, you might want to sit down for this one. Robert Durst was born on the 12th of April, 1943, in New York. His father, Seymour Durst, owned a real estate empire. These weren't apartments of houses. Some of the addresses that they owned are iconic, like number one World Trade Center, four office blocks on Third Avenue, and number four Times Square, to name a few of their extensive portfolio properties. In fact, they own over 16 million square foot of real estate in New York and Philadelphia. In comparison, London's Heathrow Airport is 13 million square feet, including all the concourses and runways. So to summarise, this family had serious money. 
Seymour was married to Bernice Herstein and they had four children, Robert, Douglas, Wendy and Thomas. But as we know, money doesn't equal happiness. In 1950, Bernice, Robert's mother, died as a result of either falling or jumping from the roof of their family home. It's never been determined as to whether Bernice died by suicide or had a freak accident, but the circumstances surrounding her death were odd. Robert, who was just seven when she died, claimed that he had witnessed the accident. He said that he saw his mother in her nightdress and saw her climb onto the roof and jump. His brother Douglas, who was a year younger, says that none of the children witnessed her fall. The tragedy left four young children without a mother and the psychological damage that undoubtedly would have impacted them is significant and heartbreaking. Robert and Douglas, the two oldest children, developed some issues between them and they went to therapy sessions to try to resolve sibling rivalry. When Robert was 10, a therapist said that it was possible that he had schizophrenia and personality decomposition. He was a loner at school and he had ambition. And he was the business manager of the student newspaper at Lee University and a member of the varsity lacrosse team. He earned a bachelor's degree in economics in 1965 and then enrolled in the University of California, UCLA, but later withdrew himself and returned to New York. But whilst he was at UCLA, he met a woman called Susan Berman. Remember this name. It will be important later on. Robert was expected to join the family business. This was a huge empire, but he didn't. He had no interest in working for his father, despite an incredible job offer waiting for him. He did move to Vermont and opened a health food shop, but that didn't last and in 2006, he sued for his share of the family fortune because his father appointed his brother as the new boss of the business, which was breaking tradition. It usually went to the firstborn son. Incredibly, Robert Durst received $65 million. So that's how Robert Durst became estranged from his family and became a multimillionaire. But it was what was happening in his personal life that will undoubtedly leave your jaw on the floor. In 1971, Robert Durst met a dental hygienist called Kathleen McCormack. After two dates, they moved in together and on Robert's 30th birthday, they got married. Kathleen then started studying to be a paediatrician. All seemed like it was going well, but then one evening, on the 31st of January 1982, Kathleen turned up randomly at a dinner party that she wasn't expected to attend. It was her friend Gilberte, and the party was in Connecticut. 
Kathleen was upset when she arrived, and she was wearing red gym trousers, which was really unlike her. She was always dressed smartly. She later left, and Robert called her, and she went to go back to him. And this was the last time that she was knowingly seen by anyone other than Robert Durst. But what happened next would leave suspicion over Robert. They argued that night, and Robert would later say that he saw his wife go onto a commuter train into the city, and he then had a drink with a neighbour. But he said he spoke to Kathleen later on, on the phone. He had lied, and in fact, he'd just gone to bed. He didn't initially report his wife missing. Her friend whose house that she had turned up at unexpectedly did after she failed to attend a pub date that they'd arranged. It was then discovered that Kathleen had been to hospital three weeks before she went missing and she'd been treated for facial bruises. She told a friend that Robert had beat her up, but no charges were pressed. Meanwhile, Kathleen's belongings were found in a trash compactor at their apartment block. The couple had been discussing divorce and she'd asked Robert for a quarter of a million dollars in a settlement. But instead of agreeing, he cut off all her credit cards and stopped paying her medical school tuition. It was then also discovered that Robert had a separate apartment where he was keeping another girlfriend a woman called Prudence Farrow, for three years. Robert put up a reward for his wife's return, and first of all, he offered $100,000. But then, he reduced it to just $15,000. Remember, Robert had $65 million. There was a call that was made to the professor at Kathleen's University, which was a call to call in sick, but it was unclear if it was made by Kathleen. The investigation yielded no results, and Kathleen was another missing person in New York. Eight years after she went missing, Robert divorced her, citing spousal abandonment. The following year, at the request of Kathleen's devastated family, she was declared legally dead, and there was no evidence that she was alive. Kathleen's family were adamant that Robert had killed her and they attempted to sue him for $100 million, but it wasn't successful. Sadly, Kathleen's mother died without knowing what happened to her daughter. But there was one thing that the police had that they couldn't dispute. Robert's friend, Susan Berman, the one he had met when he was at UCLA, had allegedly provided Robert with a false alibi on the night Kathleen went missing. But, in December 2000, Susan Berman would be executed at her home in Beverly Hills. Police found 55-year-old Susan Berman dead of a single gunshot wound to the head. Nothing was stolen, and the neighbors report having never heard a shot fired. On Christmas Eve in the year 2000, a neighbour of Susan Berman's called the police to do a welfare check on her. Her back door had been left open, and one of her dogs was running wild and barking in the garden, 
It wasn't being attended to, and this was extremely out of the ordinary. Susan loved her dogs. The police arrived, and they found Susan laying on the floor. She'd been shot in the head, and there was blood on the floor. Her dog had stepped through the blood, which made bloody paw prints. The police opened an investigation right away, and days later, the police at Beverly Hills Police Department received a letter which contained Susan's address, along with the word cadaver. Cadaver, for those of you who might not know, is the medical term for a dead body. Notably, on this envelope, the word Beverly in Beverly Hills is spelt wrong. For clarification, Beverly Hills, the place, is spelt B-E-V-E-R-L-Y and the name is spelt B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y. On the envelope, Beverly was spelt with the extra E like the name instead of the correct spelling because it was a place. The police checked Susan's financial records and they saw that a man named Robert Durst had paid her $50,000 in two instalments of $25,000. This, of course, piqued their interest. It was discovered that Robert had been in California just days before her murder, but there was nothing linking him to being in Susan's property. Records showed that he had flown from San Francisco in Northern California, which was a six-hour drive from Beverly Hills, to New York the day before Susan's body was discovered. Robert Durst was asked by police about his relationship with Susan. He confirmed that he had sent her money and that she was his alibi for Kathleen's death but he declined to be officially interviewed in relation to her murder. So whilst the police were investigating Susan's murder, and whilst Kathleen was still a missing person, presumed dead, Robert was going about living his life. Until he heard, through his sister Wendy, that the police were looking into cold cases in New York, and one of those cases was Kathleen's. Okay, it's now that things are going to get so bizarre and so weird that it might be a bit of a struggle to keep up. I'm going to try my best to navigate you through what happened next. Robert moved to Galveston, Texas upon hearing that the NYPD were looking into Kathleen's case as a missing person. I need to note here that Galveston is very, very different to New York or to Beverly Hills. It's a beach town in Texas, and it sits on the southern coast of America. And in the year 2000, it had just over 57,000 people living there. But Robert didn't go there to live as himself. No. He went there to live. Wait for it. As a mute woman. 
Yes, I know. It's all got a bit confusing, hasn't it? Let me explain. Robert was freaked out by the reopening of Kathleen's case and he left New York to live under the radar in the year 2000. He rented an apartment and he had a neighbour, an elderly man called Morris Black, who was 71 years old. These apartments that both Morris and Robert were living in were basic, not the type of apartments that you think a man with $65 million would be living in. But then things got weirder. In the autumn of 2001, Morris Black's dismembered body parts were found in the Galveston Bay area. His head was never recovered. And just two weeks later, Robert Durst was arrested on the suspicion of the murder and dismemberment of Morris Black. Now, I need to tell you more about Robert's behaviour here. So, as I said, he moved to Galveston, Texas, and he rented an apartment opposite Morris. He had disguised himself as a mute woman, and even his landlord had brought this. The police suspected that it might have been someone close to Morris who had killed him and looked at his neighbour and they soon discovered the real identity of Robert. They arrested him on the 9th of October, 2001, and they interviewed him at the station. Cutting somebody up with a saw is a really difficult thing to do. I agree. You know that the way the body was cut, somebody knew how to cut the joints. You see, I don't know that. Subsequently, I've been told that a surgeon would... would cut up a body the same way you you a chicken. You go into the joint and, and you cut around the joint to get rid of all the ligaments and then the thing comes out. You're not going to go and try to cut through the goddamn bone like right. I did, which was hard. They, Cutting through a bone is not easy with anything. No, it's definitely not easy. It's definitely not easy. I mean, I think you knew what you were doing. You didn't cut yourself, right? I mean, you were able to, to get this I done. I know that cutting up that body the way I was doing it was the hard way. Robert wasn't denying it. In fact, he was casually talking about it, like he was preparing a roast dinner instead of dismembering a human being. This led the officers to charge him with murder and he was released on quarter of a million dollar bail. So they were very shocked when he paid it outright. And it was then that Robert's wealth status started to come to light. He missed a court hearing a week later and a warrant was issued for his arrest for skipping bail. On the 30th of November, Robert was caught on CCTV in a Walgreens store in Pennsylvania, trying to shoplift plasters, or band-aids, for my American listeners, a newspaper and a chicken salad. Just remember, he has $65 million, guys. But on arrest, they found that Robert had $500 in his pocket in cash. In a search of his car, they found, wait for it, $37,000 in cash, two guns, weed, Morris Black's driving licence, and directions to Gilberti's home in Connecticut. Gilberti, 
the friend that his missing wife Kathleen had turned up at her dinner party the night before her disappearance. I told you to sit down, didn't I? What the hell's going on? So during that time, he was also caught stalking his brother Douglas on Douglas's home CCTV. At the time, Robert was armed. Robert was extradited back to Texas and his trial was set for 2003. But Robert's defence decided to get a medical professional to check him over and he was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. This was used in his defence and it did carry some weight. During the trial, Robert admitted that he was responsible for the death of Maurice Black, but he claimed that he murdered him in self-defence. He told the jury that he and Morris had been having an argument and that Morris had grabbed his twenty-two caliber pistol and threatened him with it. After a struggle, Robert had accidentally shot Morris with it and then went on to dismember his body and throw it in the Galveston Bay. For context, Morris was 71 years old. Robert was 58. And incredibly, because Morris's head was not found and the cause of death could not be determined, the jury came back and acquitted Robert Durst. Yes, let me just repeat that. They acquitted Robert Durst, despite the fact that he had confessed to murder. In the court footage, which is available online, you can see Robert, who is standing next to his defence team, suddenly relax. His shoulders drop and the look of relief spreads all over his face. But this doesn't mean that he's completely without punishment. And an incredible, excuse my language, fuck up of the justice system, Robert is sentenced to five years for tampering with evidence. That's for the dismemberment of Maurice Black's body. And he's also sentenced for skipping bail in December 2004. Though he is released after just six months. Yes, six months. In July 2005. He went on parole and he wasn't allowed to travel far from his home, but he did anyway. And he visited a shopping mall near to where he killed Maurice Black. And guess who he bumps into when he's in this visit to this shopping centre? The judge who presided over his case, Judge Susan Sis. She then tips off the Texas Board of Parole and Pardons to tell him that he's breaking his parole conditions and he was re-arrested and sent back to jail for violating the terms of his parole. Now, I'm just going to put this out there. If I had pretty much got away with murder, I'd been sentenced, well, a very short sentence for dismembering a body and for skipping bail. I wouldn't be taking the piss and going out when my bowel conditions said that I needed to stay home. And if I did go out, and I did bump into the judge that presided over my case, I wouldn't kill a cat and then put it outside of her house. 
you testified at Durst's parole hearing, and it wasn't long after that that you found a dismembered cat on your doorstep. Why do you think Durst was, was involved with that? When I came home and I drove up, I saw something right at the foot of my sidewalk, and at first I thought it was a dead rat. And as I got out of my car and focused on it, I realized it was a severed cat head with the front two legs attached. And I thought, oh my God, what in the world is that? Is that really what I think it is? And as I'm, as I'm trying to process this, it dawns on me that this is a severed head. And this was done perfectly. It was clean. This was a hot, hot uh, June 29th day in Texas, which is very, very hot. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a drop of blood. There wasn't a body fluid. There wasn't a hair out of place. And it was laid there perfectly with the front two paws crossed. Mm -hmm. It was placed there very, 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 very carefully. So I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, oh my God, what is this? And it hit me, oh my God, this is a severed head. And I knew that he'd had a history of destroying animals and cutting up animals and doing horrible things to them. Mm. And I thought, back to, I thought back to that moment when he was in my chambers and he was looking at all of my pictures when he was angry about uh, me not allowing a cartoon in a, for, the, for, the, for their defense. And I ran, into my, I ran into my house thinking, oh God, please let my dogs be okay. And they, they were fine. Unbelievably, Robert was only sentenced to a few months and then he was a free man from March 2006. But that didn't mean that he was seemingly blending into society with no attention. Something radical had happened, which completely opened up this case to a global audience. A film director named Andrew Jarecki had heard about this case and he decided to make a film adaptation about it. He called the film All Good Things, and Ryan Goslin played Robert. Kirsten Dunst played his missing wife, Kathleen. He'd given them different names, but Robert had heard about the film and contacted Andrew Jarecki directly. He said he liked the film, and he said that he would be interested in working with Andrew on a documentary version of the film. They got together and, over the course of a few years, they produced this film. Andrew called it The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. And I have to reiterate here, it's one of the best documentaries that I've ever seen. I'm a TV producer who has made documentaries and I'd love to be able to make something even remotely as good as this was. But what was uncovered in that documentary would mean that soon, Robert Durst would again be indicted for another murder, and he'd be arrested on the day of its release. And we begin tonight with that famous millionaire under arrest in a cold case 30 years in the making after a major twist in the case playing out on national television. Robert Durst, long suspected in the disappearance of his beautiful young wife, later suspected of murdering a friend in cold blood just weeks after the investigation into his wife was reopened. And then in a third case, acquitted even after admitting he killed a neighbor. Well, tonight Durst, under arrest in that orange jumpsuit, entering court, about to be extradited, charged with murder. I know, I know, it's so confusing, so let me explain. During the production of The Jinx, Andrew Jarecki went on an investigation of his own. 
Over the six-part series, he tells you everything. He covers the suicide of Robert's mother, Bernice, the family arguments, the disappearance of his wife, Kathleen, the execution of his friend, Susan, and the killing and dismemberment of Maurice Black. That even though Robert admitted it, he was never found guilty. I still can't get my head around that. But during the programme, three significant things happened. Number one, Susan Berman is discovered to be the daughter of Davy Berman. Davy was a mobster, prominent on the Las Vegas Strip. Here's a clip of Susan, before she was murdered, talking about her father. My father, Davy Berman, who worked for Meyer Lansky and, and uh, Frank Costello in Murder Incorporated, he came out of Sing Sing, I believe it was the end of the 30s. Lansky and Costello gave him a choice, what city do you want to run and we'll give you a million dollars. And he said, I just want train fare to Minneapolis and I want to run the rackets in the Twin Cities. This, of course, is before gambling was legal. My father's only skill was gambling. So he went to the Twin Cities. In that time, it was wide open, even though the police, police were paid off. This was the end of the 30s, the early 40s. And he ran Minneapolis for many years and he was very, very good about it and good at it. And then he uh, went to the war. He volunteered for service. He came back a war hero in 1945. And Ben Siegel said to him, um, I have this fabulous idea. I've talked Meyer Lansky into putting our money into Las Vegas, taking some money out of Cuba. So in 1945, when I was two months old, we came to join my father. At that time, he was partner in three downtown clubs in downtown Las Vegas, the Las Vegas Club, the El Dorado, and the Apache. And Ben Siegel wanted him to go into partners. They were all part of Lansky's group, but there were many competing divisions. Because of Ben Siegel's temper, my father always said, beware of a man with a terrible temper. He was his best friend, but he didn't want to be partners with him. But in 1946, uh, Meyer Lansky talked my father into taking a partnership in the Flamingo. Um, I grew up in the, the center of the world, in, in my opinion. Of course, as a child, it seemed glamorous, and it seemed like we were very important, and our town was, because everyone came to Las Vegas. The end of the 40s, the early 50s, Las Vegas was like Monte Carlo in the United States, and my father was always saying, oh, look, there's a king. It was from Thailand or something, or there's a count. Um, I thought it was the most glamorous city in the world, and all things seemed possible. Celebrities, of course, came to our house since my father owned the hotel. And he, my father was kind of, they said, the Henry Kissinger of Vegas. He was very diplomatic, and he was the one that worked out all the you know, arguments between everyone else. That was Susan talking to 48 Hours on CBS. Number two, Susan's stepson, Sareb Kufman, was sorting through his stepmother's things when he found a letter from Robert Durst to Susan Berman at her Beverly Hills address. As he looked at the envelope, he noticed something. Beverly was written like the name. B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y. Just like the cadaver note that had been sent to the police when Susan was executed in her home. When Susan's stepson found the envelope, he called Andrew Jarecki, the film director, and he goes round there. And in the documentary, 
you see Andrew Jarecki and the crew examine this envelope and they put two and two together and they get four. In the documentary, Andrew confronts Robert Durst with his letter. He shows him the handwriting that's printed out from both letters, from both the cadaver note to Beverly Hills Police Station and also the envelope that was addressed to Susan Berman, both with the word Beverly spelt wrong. The handwriting looks almost identical. He shows them the handwriting, it's printed out from both letters, and on a piece of paper, they look identical in spelling and in the shape of the handwriting. From the outside looking in, it looks as though Robert has killed Susan, the woman who had given him a false alibi, on the night his wife disappeared. The woman who he then paid $50,000 to, And then did he kill her when he found out through his sister that the investigation into Kathleen's death had been reopened? I said at the beginning there were three things in the documentary that stood out. And here's the third. After Andrew Jarecki confronted Robert about the Beverly Hills letter, which he denied was him, by the way, Robert goes to the bathroom and commits the ultimate mess up in documentary filmmaking. Just because you're away from the camera, it doesn't mean that us producers can't hear you if you've still got your microphone on. This is the raw audio that was picked up on Robert Durst's microphone just after he'd been confronted about the Beverly Hills letter whilst he was in the bathroom. Just for context, there's no one else there. He's talking to himself. Or maybe this is the bathroom. Yeah, that's... You're all right. This is the bathroom. There it is. You're caught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kill them all, of course. 
audio was transcribed as, You're right, of course. You can't imagine. Arrest him. I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And the burping. I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. So there it was, an alleged confession, and the police had to act quickly. The film was being shown on HBO in America and Sky. It was brilliantly shot, and the story of Robert Durst was brilliantly told. Robert Durst is a controversial but strangely likeable personality. He's almost comedic in the way that he presents himself and the way that he talks. And he was giving people conflicting opinions of himself all across the world. But in 2019, it was revealed that some of the bathroom confession that was captured by the documentary team was altered during the edit. But all this did was increase the importance of what he had said. The police arrested Robert Durst for the murder of Susan Berman and a conditional hearing in February 2017 showed a friend of Robert's called Nick Chavin come to the stand and testify that Robert had confessed to killing Susan directly to him. A preliminary hearing was postponed until April 2018, after some of Robert's defence team suffered damage to their homes and offices as a result of Hurricane Harvey. In the meantime, Robert entered a plea of not guilty. The judge ruled that the prosecution would be allowed to tell the jury about his previous trials and the murder of Morris Black. They could also mention the disappearance of his wife Kathleen, as they believed that the motive for killing Susan was linked to her knowing Robert was responsible for Kathleen's disappearance. But then on Christmas Eve 2019, the prosecution received some incredible and surprising news. Robert Durst was now admitting that he was the one who wrote the cadaver note. In the Jinx documentary, Robert told Susan's stepson that, quote, whoever wrote that note killed Susan. Robert continued to deny killing her and said the note was merely to inform the police that he knew there was a body in the house. The prosecution did not buy Robert's version of events and the trial started and Robert was present but he looked half the man that he was in his trial for the murder of Morris Black. Literally. He was frail and stick thin and in a wheelchair. It was surprising when Robert took the stand to be cross-examined. He struggled to breathe and he was very slow in his speech. But the prosecution were not put off by his fragility. 
I've listened to the recordings from the trial and there was one bit that really stood out to me. This is Robert describing the moment that he says that he found Susan's dead body. Was she cold to the touch? Was she warm to the touch? Could you tell? I put my hand over her face. I might have left that out to see if she was breathing, see if I could feel breath, and it felt cold. Her breath felt, her face felt cold. She's dead. What do you mean her breath felt cold? Was she breathing on you when you got there? No, she was not breathing. So how can her breath be cold when she's dead? She's a stiff. It was, I put my hand on her face and it was cold. Yes, you heard that right. Her breath was cold. But in my experience, dead bodies don't breathe. And the cross-examiner picked up on this too. Robert had clearly slipped up. The jury left to consider their verdicts, and when the jury reached their decision, they all entered the room, but Robert wasn't there. He had been exposed to COVID-19, and he was in isolation. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Robert Durst, guilty of the crime of first-degree murder of Susan Berman. On the 17th of September 2021, Robert Durst was convicted of the murder of Susan Berman and sentenced to life in prison. The following month, he was put on a ventilator due to an illness. The following week, whilst he was still in hospital, the police charged Robert with the murder of his wife, Kathleen. They have never found her body. Just three months later, on January the 10th, 2022, Robert Durst died after a cardiac arrest. Justice came, but far too late. If this case has intrigued you, then I would hugely recommend watching The Jinx, by Andrew Jarecki. The last time I checked, it was on Sky in the UK and on HBO Max in the US. I hope you can find it and watch it. It's absolutely fascinating. Robert Durst was convicted of killing three people. Kathleen McCormack, Susan Berman and Maurice Black. Whilst there are so many bizarre and incredible elements to this case... There are still three victims that have lost their lives and three families that are living without their loved ones. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, for coming back week after week. I felt really overwhelmed this week in in, in a good way. I've had so many incredible messages. I have released a trailer for this podcast so people can share it. I was having messages from people on Instagram and on Twitter, hashtag X, whatever it is now. And people were asking me if there was something they could share with their loved ones and their friends to maybe share the podcast. That is 
so unbelievably generous of you thank you so much for everyone that's done that this is still a third job for me I'm still a TV producer I'm still a teacher and this is something that I do in my spare time I've also got two children so I don't have a lot of that so every time that someone shares something or tells a friend about this podcast it truly means the absolute world so thank you so much I'm going to be back next week, but I want to tell you that I have confirmed my next multi-part series. I've written all the scripts, I've done a ton of research, and I'm off to the location of where this victim died to interview some people that are related to the case. And I'm extremely, extremely nervous about this one. This is a huge, huge case. You may have heard of it, you may have not. It's a UK case but it's one that still needs justice. Thank you again for listening. If you'd like to support the show, there is a link in the show notes where you can do so. Until next time, I'm Naomi Channel and this has been Real.